This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. This must have been horrific for him to disavow everything he strongly believed in as a scientist. You know, history never repeats itself, but it rhymes, right? And there are echoes of that now. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we talk about what Galileo can teach us about climate change and COVID-19. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 133. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hey there, Dan. Another week. Here we are. We're making it, Josh. Every day is another day that reminds me of the day before it (laughs) this feels normal now i think so and i think that is making people a little more restless like i feel like my kids have been more when they get onto their school uh zoom calls they get a little more like rambunctious because they're just looking for some kind of activity some you know they have this frenetic energy to go be with people so hopefully everybody is staying safe and staying patient and we'll get through it Yeah, we were taking a walk yesterday afternoon in my neighborhood, and we stopped and talked to to some neighbors that we know, you know, across the street (laughs) from one another, six feet away. And, you know, we had a nice conversation, probably like a five to seven minute conversation. And as we were walking away, my nine-year-old daughter said, that was really nice to talk to some people. (laughs) Humans. (laughs) Human interaction. It's kind of nice. Josh... The other thing that's nice is I think you have an ethanol on your end of the call. What do you have? I do. Tonight I have from Sierra Nevada Brewing the Hazy Little Thing IPA. I'm pretty sure I have had that beer before. Yeah, it's a good one. Uh, It's a little higher gravity than what I usually drink. It's a 6.7%, but it's definitely hazy. It's got that sort of fruity, hazy uh, beer thing going for it. And I kind of justify the higher gravity by the fact you know, if you go out to a bar, Dan, you're drinking a full 16-ounce pint. Uh, but this is uh, from a can, a nice 12-ounce can. So, you know, that's not too bad. You can have three or four and not feel bad about it, right, Josh? <laughs> I don't know about that. Okay. You know, Dan, it got me thinking a little bit about a lot of beer now comes in cans. And, you know, I realized that probably within the last 10 years, that's a changing trend. Because remember, not too long ago, it seemed like everything was in bottles. Yeah, cans were, were simply not done. Yeah, and now, I mean, all the, st- all the micro-brews, the craft beer, are transitioning back over to cans. And I was thinking, you know, I kind of like a can. I used to, I think, only get cans if I was doing something like going camping or going to the beach or going to the pool. But, you know, I realized, like, on these uh, increasingly warmer days, I like a, a can with a nice koozie on it. So I got to looking online a little bit of research on the advantages of cans over bottles. Would you allow me to take a moment to tell you how cans are superior to bottles? Please do. I have, I have theories, but you, you get started and we'll see if you cover all the things that I think cans are better for. All right, we'll see, we'll see if I missed anything. The first one has to do with protecting the beer. As you probably know, Dan, there are three really big enemies to beer quality, and that is light, oxygen, and heat. All bad. If, if you want skunky beer, that's how you get it. That's what it leads to, uh, skunky beer. Uh, the good news for bottles, though, is amber glass actually does a pretty good job of blocking about 99% uh, 
of UV wavelengths that will damage beer. But clear glass and green glass are especially poor at protecting your beer. And you know, a lot of beers, uh, not all beers in bottles come in brown bottles. Josh, is, is this a veiled attack against Corona beer at this moment? Well, listeners might be surprised to know this. I actually like Corona beer. A nice Corona with a lime is one of my uh, secret enjoyments. But a can, obviously, impervious to light. So a can definitely gets the win for protecting your beer from light. But even more important is protection from air. So a can, sort of by its design, is it forms an airtight seal. And unlike a bottle, you don't have that headspace uh, that's just a little bit of contact with residual air that can lead to a beer going bad a little quicker than it might in a can. There must be air in a beer can. Otherwise, if you opened it, it would spray all over your face. It's an airtight seal and it has like sort of a, I think it's kind of a vacuumy seal. There's got to be headspace, no? I don't know. I'm not sure, Dan. And the other big piece of this, and this is one that you will probably enjoy, is the impact on the environment. That's what I was thinking about. The, the approximate weight of a six-pack of bottled beer is seven and a half pounds. That's pretty heavy, actually. That is heavy. Whereas a six-pack of canned beer is five pounds. So that's pretty significant. An extra two pounds of glass. And the cans will stack much tighter in shipping. So you can definitely get more volume of beer in a truck. That is absolutely true. Uh, so a lot, a lot less shipping fuel that's needed to ship the same numbers of beer. And how about recyclability, Josh? That was my other concern. I feel like aluminum is infinitely recyclable. It feels to me like glass is probably also infinitely recyclable, but I just have this feeling that it's got to be, you, you need more heat or more temperature or more energy to recycle glass. Maybe that's not true. I'm not sure about that, Dan, but what I was reading is that most localities tend to have, have a much more robust recycling process for aluminum than they do for glass. And some estimates actually show that in most places, up to 70% of all cans are recycled, much less than that of glass. Well, there you go. So cans are the answer. Cans are the answer. So uh, I guess I'm happy to have these cans. I appreciate that, Josh. You know, Dan, we should, we've talked about it before. We should really get those Hello PhD koozies printed. No time like the present. Dan, before we move on, I want to share an email that just came in from a listener with some feedback on a past show. Are you want me to read it or do you want to? Why don't you read it, Dan? Hi, Josh and Dan. I just wanted to say thank you so much for doing an episode on dealing with rejections from graduate school. I took a gap year to work in industry to gain real-world experience, and then I was rejected this cycle from all the grad schools I applied to. I took the rejection really hard, and the episode helped me see that it wasn't the end of the world, but a new opportunity. Your insight on how the admissions process works from an admission officer's point of view allowed me to recognize the shortcomings of my application. I looked into the NIH IRTA program that you mentioned and applied. I was successful, and I'll be starting at the NIH in a few months. I wouldn't have even known about this amazing opportunity if it wasn't for this podcast. Thank you so much for setting me down this path, and I'm looking forward to what the future holds. And that was signed, Best Samantha. So we are so excited for you, Samantha. You were not the only person to have gotten that letter and not the only person to have been disappointed in that moment. But we're so happy, so proud that you are continuing down that path, that you found another way to get where you're trying to go. And that's amazing. That is fantastic. We have lots of great grad students every year who who come to our program from the NIH IRTA program. So best of luck, Samantha. And Dan, one other thing to celebrate besides some listener feedback is we have a new Patreon patron. A big thank you to Carlos, who is our newest Patreon patron. 
Very exciting. Well, thank you, Carlos. And also thank you to Promega. Um, Promega is continuing to work on the COVID-19 support for scientists on the front lines. I clicked through the, the link today, promega.com slash hello PhD, Josh. And uh, at the top of that page, there's an article about the Ribomax and the effort to find antiviral drugs to fight coronaviruses and enteroviruses. I'll let people re- click through that link and read it for themselves, but they list some research showing that there are there's some work going on on enteroviruses that is actually going to have some impacts in the coronavirus space. So if you are in that world and want to learn more about that, go to promega.com slash hellophd and click on the link. Very cool. All right, Dan, without further ado, I'm really excited to share this interview that you did, Dan, with Dr. Mario Livio. Well, let's get started. All right, Dan, this was a fascinating interview. Why don't you set the table for this interview that you did with Dr. Livia? Yeah, I'm, I'm so pleased. This is, this is not something that happens to us all the time, Josh, but we got an email and the person was talking about this new book that was coming out about Galileo. And you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a history fan. I'm not, I wouldn't call myself an expert, but I care about history and I believe history has things to teach us. And I care about this, the history of science because I think there is so much uh, richness in that world that even as scientists, we don't get to hear much about. We might hear about the papers in our field, but going back 400 years to what Galileo was doing, experimenting and, and trying to understand the cosmos was totally outside of my realm of experience. And so we got a copy of the book. I gave it a read. And <laughs> I'm just from the title, Josh, I think you know this, is, this goes beyond history. The title of the book is Galileo and the Science Deniers. And it was written by Dr. Mario Livio. When I saw that, and then I considered what we were going through as a country and as a world, I thought, we need to talk about this. And Dan, we got that email before the coronavirus outbreak really hit home where we are. Yeah, it is safe to say I am the slowest reader there possibly could be. <laughs> but yes, I, I, you know, Dr. Livio wrote this book at a time when maybe climate change was on his mind or... Uh, the teaching of evolution in schools, or, or things where science and society are kind of at loggerheads. But I don't think he saw coronavirus coming. And I think it is it is the exclamation point at the end of his book. So let's take a listen to the interview. And then we can come back and maybe unpack it a little bit. I'm Mario Livio. I'm an astrophysicist and also an author of popular science books. I worked for 24 years till 2015 with the Hubble Space Telescope. Before that, I was a professor at the Technion, Israel Institute of Technology of Physics. So that's it, basically. Yeah, and an astrophysicist by training and by practice. And, and as you mentioned, you've written, uh, I think, six books and now seven on introducing general audiences to cosmology, to mathematics, to scientific inquiry. The seventh book is titled Galileo and the Science Deniers. And there, I think there's a lot to unpack in that title, and we're going to unpack it. But can we start with, with a little bit about who Galileo was and where he lived? Because I think a lot of people might think of uh, the Tower of Pisa and some experiments, but that may be the full extent of our knowledge of Galileo. Yeah, well, Galileo was this uh, Italian, his name was Galileo Galilei. He was an Italian science, famous scientist. He lived in Italy. He was born in Pisa, but then moved around a little bit. For a while, he was in uh, near Venice, in Padua. He 
He then moved to Florence, uh, lived in Florence. Uh, he also traveled to Rome quite frequently and so on. And uh, he died in his villa in Arcetri, which is near Florence. So basically, he lived in that general area of Italy. And there is a there's a central conflict that runs through his study and, and that you follow this thread throughout the book. Can you describe to us the scientific thinking about what the universe was like um, and, and how Aristotle's model was challenged by Copernicus? Because I think that's the, central, that's the central thrust through his life. That's true. Uh, even though I, maybe I will get later to explain, uh, that was indeed the background for the fight that he had, but the fight was really about something a little bit different. So, uh, yes, so Aristotle and indeed Ptolemy uh, had this geocentric model of the solar system uh, in which the Earth was at the center and uh, everything else, all the other planets, the sun, revolved around the Earth. Uh, this was the idea. And the Catholic Church over the years adopted this particular model as its orthodoxy. Uh, and so this was the model that everybody was talking about. Earth at the center, not moving, sun moving around it, and the other planets. Copernicus changed that by suggesting, by the way, he was not the first. I mean, some of the ancient Greeks, in particular Aristarchus, suggested that there may be something else at the center. First, they suggested there was some sort of a central fire. Then Aristarchus actually suggested that it was the sun that was at the center. But those things really, uh, you know, very few people paid attention to that, uh, even though the gr great Archimedes did pay attention actually to that. In any case, uh, Copernicus suggested that the sun is actually at the center and the earth and all the other planets uh, revolve around the sun. But his book also didn't make much of an impact. Very few people, relatively speaking, read that book. And the fact is that it didn't generate many waves. In general, you see, to the, at that point, people were still treating this as sort of saving the appearances was the, was the phrase used. Namely, it was considered some sort of a mathematical model that, okay, maybe can explain observations a little bit better, which actually it really didn't. I mean, at that time, with the data that existed, uh, the observations were not really explained much better uh, by the Copernican model than by the Ptolemaic uh, model. But uh, they said, okay, well, maybe it's a mathematical convenience, you know, but it doesn't necessarily have to represent reality. And that's where Galileo enters the scene. And indeed, Kepler, Johann Kepler, uh, another great astronomer in Germany. It's so. It, what was fascinating to me, part of the history of this, is learning about the history of scientific inquiry and the history of scientific communication. Because this wasn't really a meeting-based science or or a call on the phone-based science. This was you write an opus and you try to get it published somewhere, and then other scientists respond to it, and the debate is engaged around those those writings uh, that spread probably very slowly. I would imagine. Well. In general, you are correct uh, that they would publish and, you know, relatively only a few other scientists would know about this and they would debate him by writing letters to each other and so on. Uh, Galileo was a bit different, actually, in that 
he insisted, uh, not from immediately the beginning, but a little bit later on, in instead of publishing his things in Latin, which was the language of science at the time, he started insisting publishing his findings in Italian. Really, basically, he said it for the common people to be able to read it. Uh, you know, the common people uh, couldn't read Latin. You know, it was only, you know, a sort of a scientist and some social elite that was able to read Latin. And he wrote it in Italian because he wanted to make it known to everybody else. So in some sense, he changed the conversation in that it wasn't just now scientists that were reacting to what he was writing, but everybody else was reacting to it too. And that's what made his books much more known than, let's say, Copernicus's book. I see. And this is this is what led him to get into some trouble. And and so, as you mentioned, the, the milieu he was working in was about Copernicanism versus an Aristotelian view. But his conflict was that he his writings were noticed by some pretty important and pretty, turns out, dangerous people. So, in particular, I mean, uh, he got into a clash with the Catholic Church. And you see, here is, again, there is something that people sometimes a little bit are misguided by this, because it is always presented as if this was a clash between science and religion. And Galileo never saw it as such. Uh, Galileo himself was, uh, you know, as a Catholic himself and, you know, a sincere believer, as the Pope once said. But the thing was, the, the clash was between the science and what some theologians thought was the interpretation of biblical texts. This was the clash. Galileo insisted that actually the biblical texts or scripture in general actually does not make any errors. It is just that it is not a book on science. It is a book written for our salvation, he said. And he gave examples that, look, not even the planets are named there. So it's really not a book of science. So the clash came about because you know, people were taking, let's say, the text from Joshua, the book of Joshua, where, uh, you know, Joshua, uh, uh, the Lord, at the, Joshua's request, commanded the sun to stand still uh, above the Canaanite city of Gibbon uh, when he was fighting, you know, the Canaanites. Uh, they say, well, look, it says that he made the sun stand still, not the earth. So it must be the sun that has been moving. And Galileo was insisting, no, 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 you shouldn't take this literal, literally, the text. That was just written so that common people will sort of understand what is going on. And to common people, it looks as if the sun is moving, so you kind of have to stop it. But it's much easier to make it stop if you simply stop the earth, let's say, from rotating, you know, and so on. So the clash was really between literal interpretations of scripture and the science, not between religion and science per se. And not in Galileo's own mind and heart. Uh, as you're saying, he's, he still believed in the salvation offered by that biblical doctrine, but he... Exactly. He felt, you know, what basically what he was observing through his telescope, and I, I liked how you did, laid this out in the book, because as a, as a scientifically trained adult, I thought to myself... 
how would I demonstrate that it is the earth that is spinning and rotating and not the sun? And so you walk through some of the observations that he made and and the pieces that he could know and the pieces that he couldn't know and, and lots of his theories that didn't play out. Can you just give an example of maybe the phases of Venus or sunspot, some way that he observed the heavenly bodies and made these ideas uh, more concrete? So, for example, one of the things that worked very well was uh, the question of the phases of Venus. If it is really the case that everything revolves around the Earth uh, and Venus is somehow always roughly between the Earth and the Sun, then Venus should have uh, always looked, uh, you know, more or less like half full or some, some sort of a half crescent, you know, something like that, uh, but never, you know, like completely full or completely dark. Because it would never be on the illuminated side of the Earth if the sun were on the opposite. Yeah. On the other hand, if, if uh, everything revolves around the sun and Venus is closer to the sun than the Earth, then, for example, when Venus is on the farthest side from the Earth, then it is fully illuminated. So, you know, it should look smaller because it's farther and fully illuminated. When it is closest to Earth, and it's between the Earth and the Sun, it would look dark and bigger. So basically, Venus, the prediction was that Venus should show phases just like the Moon. And that's what Galileo showed that is actually observed. Uh, so, you know, that was one of the best evidences that, that the Copernican model was correct. And, and we would, as modern-day observers, say the case is closed on this. But at the time, the influence of the church was so strong, there had been people burned at the stake in, in recent memory for expressing what were considered heresies of, of a view that, that basically uh, Galileo was describing. You know, in the, in the book, you describe these sort of mental gymnastics, uh, Tycho Brahe, to make the cosmology fit both the observation and the church. Yes. Well, you know, in defense of, of uh, Tycho Brahe, uh, you know, I would say he was actually a great scientist. You know, he, he was not just some, you know, dogmatic person, you know, and so on. Uh, he was a great scientist. And he he had reasons why he did not quite think that the Copernican model works. Uh, and, and his main reason was the absence of, of a parallax. This is the idea, you see, that if the Earth revolves around the sun, then if you look at observations that you take six months apart, when the Earth is at opposite sides of its orbit around the sun, and you look at the fixed stars, he thought, you know, you should see a little bit of a shift. Like, you know, when you travel with a train, uh, you see that the closer trees seem to move against the farther background. Yeah, so he didn't see that. He, he, he couldn't see that. And therefore, he said, well, you know, in that case, I don't like that so much. So he suggested this, this hybrid model in which everything revolved around the sun, but the sun itself revolved around the Earth. And with that model, actually, one could explain the phases of Venus. I mean, the phases of Venus did not argue against this particular model. Now, Galileo didn't accept this model because he thought, well, in our language, you would say had too many moving parts, too complicated, you know, that, oh, everything around the sun and then the sun around the earth. We didn't like this. But to be honest, he had 
very little proof that completely would have killed this model. All the Catholics, even the scientists among them, the Jesuit scientists, you know, were very happy that they had this sort of way to explain the observation and still stay with the notion that the Earth is at the center and, and, and not moving. Now, unbeknownst to Galileo, uh, his observations of the path that sunspots trace on the surface of the sun actually could have actually proved that this model is incorrect too. But he, he didn't fully understand that. I mean, he thought that that proved it, but not because he really knew all the details. And it's fascinating to read some of the things that he gets wrong that you lay out, his evidence about how tides flow and things like that. So for modern scientists listening, uh, feel good knowing that even Galileo, who discovered amazing things, made mistakes and had errors in his models. And uh, we can all hope to be so excellent as he was. His story leads inexorably toward the church. He is forbidden from publishing about this, or sort of forbidden, and I encourage people to read about it, from publishing about this, these Copernican ideas. And ultimately, he publishes, uh, do you, is it pronounced Dialogo? Dialogo, or, but it's a dialogue. Dialogo. He publishes a dialogue, yeah. And, and this, it was a dialogue between three characters, uh, one takes the position of the Aristotelian Ptolemaic. I thought it was very funny that that character was called Simplicio. And another takes the position of the Copernican view, and he tries to lay out the arguments for and against. Is this, a, is this an important work? Is this something that people care about today? Yeah, it's, you know, it's certainly one of the most important works, yes, I think, in the history of science. No doubt about that, yes. You see, there Galileo really tried to present his views. But he presented them in this, you know, between these three interlocutors that, you know, there is one guy who defends Aristotle, one guy who is a complete Copernican, which represents Galileo himself, and one guy uh, represents uh, somebody who used to be a friend of, a very good friend of Galileo, who was deceased by the time the book was published, who was a very smart Venetian guy, uh, but who was not a scientist. He was a person who, you know, could listen to science, understand arguments, and, and, and so on. So we had, like, he has these, these three point of views. He has two point of views and one who sort of judges between them, if you like. So, yes, it's, a, it's of course, not only it's an important view uh, book because he presented his views so clearly, uh, but also because it's the book that led to his condemnation. So... Of course, it's important for the history of science. This book comes to the attention of Pope Urban VIII. I want people to read your book because you lay out the phases of the trial, and it and it feels a little bit like an episode of Law and Order, where he is tried in, in three phases, and there are plea bargains, and there are pieces of evidence that come to light that change the change the outcome of the trial. So I encourage people to read that, but it ends with him having to recant um, what, what are, he needs to completely abandon his false opinions of Copernicanism. And he has to kneel and disavow everything that he believes and has learned, which I think was very hard for him. The, the way that you present his personality, he was, he's a bit of a firecracker. Yes, he was. He was, yes. Uh, he, he was certainly not shy. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, he also had, you know, let's face it, he had a good opinion of himself, too. I mean, you know, I mean, he, he was very smart, and he knew it, that he was very smart. 
he was absolutely convinced that he was right. And in some ways, given that he was still, you know, a, a sincere believer, uh, he, at some level, one could think that he also wanted to save the church from making some incredible mistake uh, by not accepting his views. And then, but at the same time, you know, he's at that point an old man. He was sickly throughout much of his life. And he's carried through this trial. And, uh, you know, at, at that point, he's found vehemently suspected of heresy, which unless he recants, you know, and so on, this is becomes, you know, being a heretic. And a heretic is, uh, is to be burned at the stake, which is what happened to Giordano Bruno. Um, you know, just, uh, you know, 30 years earlier. So he, at that point, does recant. And this must have been horrific for him to basically, you know, disavow everything he strongly believed in as a scientist. Plus, the whole point that, you know, we understand even better today than he understood at his time, the, the whole point of intellectual freedom. You know, imagine... Imagine that Galileo was wrong with everything he said, okay? Imagine that he was totally wrong, and it was really the sun that revolved around the earth. Why would the church force him to abandon his views, even if he was wrong? I mean, today we think in terms of intellectual freedom. You can think whatever you want and put your theories out there. So uh, he didn't quite, I guess, feel all of that. He must have felt some of it, at least. So, so for him, this... The whole abjuration and so on must have been just an incredibly painful experience. Well, the injustice is so stark to look back at now, to know that he was absolutely correct in, in most of his views, and to know that he had to to kneel before those who were incorrect in, in their science. I want to bring this into the, the modern age, because I think you wrote this book not as just a pure history of Galileo, but... You know, why do we need to know about Galileo's story today? Well, there are many reasons, but let me give you a few. So, first of all, Galileo is one of the most fascinating personalities in history. Not only in the history of science, but in history in general. So, you know, while everybody has heard about Galileo, I discovered that very few people actually know exactly what happened to him and, you know, and, and, and what his story was. I, I, I discovered this even by talking to friends who are mostly scientists. And they say, oh, yeah, yeah, Galileo, Galileo. But actually, they know very little. Tower of Pisa, that's what we need to know. <laughs> and that story is probably not even true. So <laughs> it's amazing. So, so that, that's, that's uh, one reason. Yes, a very fascinating historical figure in general. Um, but there are many others, and the main one, and this is why the book is called Galileo and the Science Deniers, is the fact that the science denial did not disappear from the world. Uh, unfortunately, we are facing it today in full force, and we're facing it in various areas. I mean, uh, let me just mention a few obvious ones. Climate change is one, yes, where there are entire circles in society which deny even the reality of climate change, let alone the fact of whether or not humans are responsible for it. So, so that's, that's a big one. 
there are some people today even, especially in the U.S., less so actually in Europe for, I, know, I don't know what reason, who, you know, still insist on teaching creationism side by side uh, with, uh, you know, Darwinian evolution in science classes. You see, I mean, I want to emphasize this. I have nothing against, you know, people, you know, reading the Bible and understanding the Bible and understanding it as a very, very important, not only important, but incredibly crucial in the history of humankind in terms of, you know, philosophy and poetry and, and whatnot, you know, and so on. And indeed faith to many, many people, yes? But it's not a science book, as, as Galileo emphasized. So to teach what is written in the Bible, this is precisely repeating the mistake that was done 400 years ago. And Galileo already fought that battle and won it because two popes now officially recognized that Galileo was right. And the other, you know, the theologian interpreters of scripture were wrong. So that's, uh, uh, of course, another reason. But look, we are now in the midst of a pandemic, right? I was hoping you would talk about that because the the prescience, your your crystal ball when you wrote this book could, it must have seen the escalation of of denial of scientific facts. Uh, the way that, that this pandemic has happened, especially in the United States, has been jaw-dropping, and I think it's right in line with what you're talking about. When I wrote the book, yes, the pandemic has not started yet. Yes, you know, I mean, I, I finished the book before it started, but it could not have more given evidence to exactly what I'm saying, that science denial exists today. You know, when you look at some of the statements made in the early stages of this pandemic in the U.S. When in March, in March, still in March, the president said that there are 15 cases now and very soon it's going to be go down to zero. I mean, you can find these, these statements. Yes, it's 15 cases now and very soon it will go down to zero. So there was so much denial in the early stages of this pandemic. And now... I, I don't know if you heard, uh, the, it was yesterday, an interview of uh, Tony Fauci, and he said it plainly. Had we acted differently at the beginning, lives would have been saved. And we didn't because of the same type of science denial that we have still today. And and that, that gets magnified again with, with climate change denial. And these are, you know, with, with Galileo's inquiry and the denial against him, it was his life that hung in the balance. Arguably, other humans were not at risk if if the church denied his beliefs. What we're talking about now is a disbelief, a denial of, of active science. It's actually taking people's lives, and a lot of people. It's, it's This is not a small problem. My, my question for you is, is the lesson from Galileo that denial of scientific inquiry is going to be with us forever? Or is there some other lesson for us as scientists or us as a society who did you write this for, and what is it that, that we can take that isn't so depressing? Well, look, I certainly hope that science denial is not going to be with us forever. But it certainly seems as if we have not fully learned the lesson uh, from the Galileo episode. But here is the point, you, and you, you said it very clearly. It is never wise to bet against science. But if you have a situation where literally 
life on the surface of this planet is at stake, you know, be it with question of climate change or with a pandemic. To bet against science in such situation is just crazy. And this is what still appears in some circles to be happening. So I, I certainly, you know, hoped for and hope for, for even more now that maybe my book will make a small change. I, I have no illusions that uh, my book will change everybody's mind. And we also know uh, there have been studies actually of this over the years where people very rarely change their mind based on convincing arguments. People who believe in something very strongly, uh, they tend not to uh, change their minds. And uh, so in some sense, I may be preaching to the choir. But I certainly hope that some people will understand, in particular, because I very clearly explained that Galileo's fight was not one of science against religion. It definitely wasn't. It was one for intellectual freedom and one for that when science clashes with literal interpretations of scripture, then you should think of a different interpretation. It doesn't change the scripture itself. Well, I'm so glad you brought that up. The One of the things I learned that I took from the book was exactly what you said. It wasn't a science versus faith debate. It was really about power. And uh, you, you have a quote from Galileo biographer Pio Piscini, who wrote for the Vatican, I think in the 1940s era. Is that when he yeah, did his yeah. biography? Yes. But he said... The persons who are most to blame in the eyes of history are the defenders of an outdated school who saw the scepter of science slipping from their hands and could not bear that the oracles coming out of their lips should no longer be religiously listened to. And so they used all means and intrigues to regain for their teaching the credit it was losing. And then, you know, in your own words, you wrote, the ruling was made by officers of the church for whom retaining authoritative power over areas totally outside their expertise took priority over open-minded critical thinking informed by scientific evidence. Sadly, we don't lack modern-day equivalents. And, and so from that perspective of power, who are these modern-day equivalents? Who, where are these scepters of science that, that people don't want to relinquish because they are losing power? I, I don't know if it is science that they want to give up. I mean, look, there are differences between science denial at Galileo's time and science denial today. Science denial at Galileo's time was, you know, again, this very particular clash between literal interpretations of scripture and uh, what science was being to demonstrate. Today, uh, there again, there have been studies of this. So if you look about climate change denial, for example, in the case of climate change denial, religiosity is a very small component of that. I mean, there are some people who deny climate change because of because of being religious, but that's very few. And most of the reason for uh, denial is has to do with the political conservatism and the various economic considerations and things of that nature. In the case of um, the coronavirus, for example, now, uh, again, you know, I don't know exactly what's in the head of, uh, let's say, the president and some of the people around him. But certainly when you, even when you hear about the discussions today, 
what you hear, and I, I simply cite, you know, what is given in the news, that the advice he gets from the actual scientific experts, namely the ones that are epidemiologists and, you know, that know exactly about the virus and all that and so on, they argue, look, we should be very careful uh, as we open up and we shouldn't do this, you know, like a switching on the light and so on, but we should, it would not be one one size fits all, we should do it differently in different areas of the country and so on and so forth. Uh, when you hear about the advice that he's getting from his economical advisors, uh, they say, oh, we need to open the economy and da-da-da-da-da-da. So clearly the reasoning there has to do with the economy, with getting reelected, with, you know, things that have very little to do with science. But that is the parallel. It is the church was afraid to give up power, uh, the authority of, of having the last word about how people live their lives and how the cosmos was ordered. And now it's investors and, and CEOs and uh, re-election campaigns that don't want to admit the evidence because that would change their uh, authority to, to make decisions. You see, I don't want to... I don't want to say it too strongly because one could argue, and I imagine some people do argue, that you know keeping the economy shut as it is right now is of course hurting many people, lots of people. Yes, we know there are now more than 16 million jobless people, and you know, and things like that. So of course that argues for you know if you want to help them, we need to open the economy. But at the same time. I don't think that the stock market is worth even the life of one person, let alone of many people. So, so th these are two different points of view. And uh, again, to, to quote the president, he said, we don't want a cure that is uh, even worse than the actual thing. Well, I don't know how the cure can be worse than the thing. I mean, what's worse than people dying? Yeah, it feels like a false equivalency. The, the economy is very, very important. And believe me, it is as important to me as it is to anybody else. But still, the, the cure, I cannot say that the cure is worse if it saves lives. You said that, that you hope that your book um, contributes to the conversation about the importance of science and the advancement of science. At the end of the day, are you fundamentally optimistic or pessimistic about how the story of this time will ultimately be written? The story of this time, I think, uh, unfortunately, uh, will not look too good for the U.S. Uh, I think that the best example of the correct behavior were places like South Korea, who instituted right from the start, they really listened to their scientists. And right from the start, they instituted mass testing. Uh, they tested like crazy. And they instituted the tracking of uh, and, and the isolation of infected people. And this uh, incredible tracing using technology of people who came in contact with infected people. And you, if you will look at the statistics in that country, I mean, they are just amazing. You know, numbers of deaths, let's say, of, or of new cases 
they have this fractal structure to them. So if you look at them from afar, they look the same, uh, whether you look in South Korea or in another country. But then you look at the numbers and you see how many new infected people they have and the numbers are like three or four, you know, and so on. And then you look in the U.S. and it is in the thousands or tens of thousands. So there is no question that the U.S. here missed the correct response in the very early stages. And and we will have those examples um, to to look back on. I think to to wrap up a little bit. I think what what I see in Galileo and what I see you writing about is an eternal optimism of science and what science can accomplish and what scientists can do. And you know, having these stories to walk around with in our minds about other scientists who have faced pushback and and to the point of of uh, real danger to their lives, but the way that history vindicates them and the way that science really advances our our well-being, our learning, and, and our society. And I, I read that in your writing. Yes, thank you. I mean, this certainly was, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I wrote this book. Uh, like I say, Galileo is worth writing about irrespective, to be honest. I mean, he's such a fascinating character. But... Uh, one of the main reasons I wrote it and the way I wrote it really had to do with, you know, the, the real, realization that um, science denial is still rampant today. And tell people where they can get the book. It comes out on May 5th, 2020. And what's the best place for them to go find that? Well, unfortunately, I think bookstores are still closed most in most places. So I think that uh, the, your best bet is to find it online. You know, if you want to support your local independent bookstore, uh, then there are um, online uh, venues that actually um, sell for for the local independent bookstores. And of course, uh, you know, the large things like Amazon and so on and Barnes and Noble and so on also sell online. But, you know, I'm all for supporting the local bookstores who are having a horrible time right now. Um, and But they, they all have now uh, offer possibilities to, to order online. Yeah, I think uh, some in my area have, uh, you can order online and then drive up to the curb and they'll put it in your car for you. So lots of opportunities and a great chance to get out of the house. Uh, Dr. Olivia, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for writing this book. And uh, please keep writing and, and come back on the show to talk about uh, whatever topic you'd like. I will try. Thank you very much. Dan, I learned so much and not always the biggest history buff, but I think I'm going to pick up and read this book. Actually, can I have your copy? You can have it. Yeah, <laughs> I will quarantine it for two weeks in a bag and then drop it off at your place. It's sort of my copy too, right? Is this a, a hello, Did we get a Hello PhD copy? It was delivered to the podcast, so you are welcome to read it. I, I did underline some things and make some notes, but you are welcome to it. Yeah, I, I feel like, the, you know, I mentioned this, but I feel like the things I knew about Galileo were he dropped some things off the side of the Leaning Tower of Pisa, which apparently may or may not be true. But what I didn't appreciate was, and, and what really comes out in the book, is what a interesting personality he was. I mean, he, he really was a, a, a controversial person. He was a very passionate person. Um, I learned some some kind of uh, epithets and swear words in Italian that he called people and people called him. So, it, you know, it, it was, this is not this drab, dry, 
kind of egghead living in history. He, he was kind of a he was kind of a badass. Oh, he was. He was, and he kind of knew it too. And so that's that's part of the interesting part of reading about his life. But man, he hit a wall, and he hit a very powerful institution that there was no. I I can't imagine a way that he could have overcome that. And when he hit that, he was just totally cowed by it. He there was nothing he could do but to recant and to say everything that he knew was true and that he believed was true was false. And I just have to believe that that ripped his heart out. Yeah, I think maybe part of it is is my personality, maybe your personality, but I think part of it might be being a scientist, having scientific training. I was hearing about you know that historical moment for Galileo having to publicly recant this thing that he not just believed but knew with evidence was true he having had seen to, it he had seen it and having to publicly say he didn't believe that i mean just was a gut-wrenching thing to think about i mean can you imagine having to do that how hard that would be um, and 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 to be in a society where that's what you felt like you had to do and, and so i think my initial response was well wow that was a crazy time back then but, you know, you and Dr. Levio really did a great job discussing how, you know, we haven't totally left that behind today. How many, how many years ago was that? Hundreds of years later? Yeah, 400 years. But, but there is a difference now. I mean, I don't, there's not a place, well, I was going to say there is nobody that is being forced to lie about what they know. That's probably not true. <laughs> <laughs> how cute, uh, Dan. Uh, yeah. How cute you are. Too, too soon, I guess. Yeah, I, I wanted to say that you can have your beliefs, and even if they are different from somebody in power's beliefs, you can still hold them. But uh, I'm going to maybe take that back. I don't know. We're in very odd times, Josh. And, and the, the funny thing about that is it's odd, but there is a lot of precedent for it. So, so a couple of things that, that stood out to me. And, and one, this actually goes before you all start talking about the parallels of of what Galileo is going through with today. Um, but early on, he was talking about how Galileo was one of the earlier scientists to publish his results, not in Latin, but in a common language of Italian that the common people could actually understand. And, you know, that immediately made me think of some of the conversations we've had on this show about that very topic, about open science and not having paywalls and the ability for the people who really benefit from the work, and in some cases fund the work, actually having access to to the science. And I thought that was really fascinating that this, this sort of idea of science being walled off, um, whether it's via language or via paywalls, uh, was something that was even being dealt with in Galileo's day. And he was he was actively working to break down those barriers. You're so right. Although in his time, it wasn't some publisher who said you must publish in Latin. It was the scientists themselves that were kind of keeping it amongst their uh, their group. But it it was subversive then, and it is subversive now to think about opening science to a wider population. It's really interesting, Josh. That's a great point. Well, and it has a lot to do with some of the things you talked about later, probably power and control of scientific inquiry and who who owns this. Not not just this information, but this even right to inquiry. It's kind of fascinating. Yeah, I want to encourage people to to read the book, to learn about Galileo, to think up through these 
these issues because they do have uh, an echo. You know, history never repeats itself, but it rhymes, right? And and there are echoes of that now. The thing that I've been thinking about in the last week or so since since I talked to Dr. Livio was when he says, if it's a matter of life and death, I wouldn't bet against science. And uh, he talks about in the book that it, it, you have a hard time arguing that art has gotten better over history, right? If, if you look at a Renaissance painting and a Jackson Pollock painting, or you look at some pop art that Andy Warhol did, you'd have a hard time arguing that this art is better than that old art, right? But when you talk about saving human lives, when you talk about what science has done to totally transform how we live in the world and how uh, we can treat people with medicine, you know, you can replace a person's heart now while it's still beating. You can uh, do surgery on people where they are not in pain. You can give a pill that cures an infection. And so there is no arguing that science has is better now, that science has made our lives longer and better. And in a, in a question of life and death, I, I would never bet against science. And that's just what I've been holding on to this week. You know, Dan, I mean, I agree with you 100%. You know, one one thing that crossed my mind that's very much in the zeitgeist right now, um, that actually I would, I would love to know what Dr. Levio thinks about this, but, you know, the day and age that we live in now and the way that science communication works today, um, as, as you indicated when you were, you were talking to him, is science communication was very slow and deliberate back in Galileo's day. Whereas today in 2020, science communication has never been more rapid. I mean, even in the last couple of years, we've seen in the biological sciences, this emergence of the preprint becoming mainstream and scientists are able faster than ever before to get their findings out to an audience, to a broad audience with the internet, literally the world, um, to digest and interpret and, and act upon or not almost instantaneously. And I think one of the things we've seen with this lower barrier to entry for um, scientific communication is I think there's, we're seeing a lot of confusion among the general public. I'll call them, I believe everyone's a scientist, but the non-professional scientific audience. We're seeing a lot of misinformation that is posing as science. And it can be sometimes hard for those who aren't scientifically trained to see the difference. And I, you know, I've witnessed that firsthand with conversations I've had with family and friends who, who really come to me because they know, Hey, you know, Josh uh, is trained as a scientist and they'll read these things online by people who say they're scientists or they'll have sciencey sounding words, but they're really poor science. Do you see what I'm saying, Dan? I do. Because a drug has a long name doesn't mean that it is a cure and the excitement you might feel about hearing something might help you versus the reality of what scientific experimentation means, which is you have controls and you, you understand why you should be skeptical of the claim. We're not doing a good job of teaching that to the general population. I, I agree that my PhD training has made me skeptical, but I don't think that everybody who went through high school is at the right level of skepticism. Is that what you're saying? I think I think it is, and I think what we're starting to see in these times of social chaos, we're seeing some bad actors emerge 
under the guise of science, uh, posing as experts. And it can sometimes be, at least in the short term, I mean, I think in the long term, this is going to sort itself out. But in the short term, really confusing a lot of members of the general public. Because I think a lot of people do believe in science and they believe science is an important way to solve problems. But sometimes it's hard to see through the crap and know what should I believe and what shouldn't I believe. This person has a, a PhD behind their name. Uh, they're a doctor. So I guess they're an authority. I guess I can believe them. And I think that that can be confusing. Did you hear that Cheeto dust is actually a cure? <laughs> well, I'm going to be safe. We've been going through a lot of Cheetos. Pretty everything. sure that's true. There's just so much information that comes out, even scientific information. Um, just over the last few months since this this pandemic hit, you know, a scientific process, which normally is pretty slow, like the publication process, the review process, in an effort to get information out more quickly, we have these little spikes of scientific information that actually don't hold up over time, like hydrochloroquine actually is a great treatment or ibuprofen is really bad. And these things then get into the media and get into the news cycle. And then they get into the, and I, maybe this is what I'm saying. I think scientists are, the scientific community is able to move on once we come up with additional information that contradicts that initial study. We are able to change our way of thinking. But the general public has a hard time then letting go of that initial conclusion that they read about a month ago. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that does make sense. There, there is too much credulity. They, if, if you approach this from a non-scientific standpoint, you look at the hope presented by a hydroxychloroquine or whatever the drug of, of the day is, and you get so excited about that being the way out that you aren't thinking through all of the ways that, that could also be dangerous or the ways that you would step-by-step step prove that that was or was not a help. And so I, I feel like as, as a scientist, you're probably holding each solution a little more loosely, whereas the general public gets whipped into a frenzy about a, a specific cure and a specific treatment. And even if the science shows it is either neutral, benign, or harmful... It's hard to move on to what the right solution is. And then you have whole groups of people who are saying that vaccines are, are killing people. So um, some of it is good faith, just not understanding how science works. And some of it, I think, is bad faith, either being uh, misled or, or actively misleading for your own reasons. But it's just such a mix of terrible outcomes because science is either hard to follow or we haven't trained people to do it. Well, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that underscores the importance of all of us who have training as, as scientists and as scientific thinkers to do a better job and to engage with our family, engage with our friends, um, and try to impart some of that critical thinking and nuance. I think, I think that's the hard part. A lot of the reasons why this show exists is because science and research is really slow and really frustrating and seldom uh, is it definitive. And that can be really frustrating to us. And so I think one of the things we have to do a better job at is making sure we communicate the scientific process and how it is messy and it is slow and it is nuanced. And there are very few silver bullet answers to, to questions. And I know that's frustrating when we really want there to be a nice, clean, easy answer. But for any of us who have spent any time in the lab, we know that that is seldom the case. 
And I think that's why those of us who have spent time in the lab are not counting on that outcome. And we are taking the steps that, that we believe we need to take to stay safe. My, my final thought on this is I think Galileo was making history, and I think we are living through history. And as we record this, I, there are over 80,000 Americans that have died from this disease. I can't believe that that is a necessary number uh, if we had not denied science. And it breaks my heart to say that, but this is so important and I don't think it's going to get less important in the next six months or two years. You're absolutely right, Dan. And and so the timing of this book and the timing of this interview that you did with Dr. Levio could not be better. And I think I'm all the more interested in trying to dig more into the history and the lessons learned through Galileo's experience and things that have happened in the past and how we can learn from those events to try to have a better shot today. I, I don't know. I'll, I think all we have right now is having this conversation and, and maybe people will have ideas about how to move us forward as a society to make science something that is less contentious, less about power and more about just coming to a common understanding so that we can find solutions. That sounds great, Dan. And again, if anyone wants to uh, read the book, if your interest is piqued after this episode today, the book is called Galileo and the Science Deniers, and you can find it in most places that you can find books. Yeah, we will post a link in the show notes. All right, Dan. Well, it's been a great episode. Always good to talk to people other than my immediate family. So thanks for giving me that escape. If you have a question or topic idea, we'd love to hear it. You can email podcast at hellophd.com or you can send us a tweet at hellophd. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. We love the feedback and it helps new listeners to find the show. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, click the Become a Patron button, or visit patreon.com slash hellophd, and we would appreciate the beer money. Thanks to the ongoing support from all of our patrons. All right, Dan, it has been a pleasure. Josh, we'll see you next time. See you next time.